Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. About five years there. Man, it was always so damn cold and windy, and I looked up, like, because it was so windy, and I was looking at the highest wind speeds in the United States, you know, average winds, and it was like, it was like Dodge City, Kansas, and it was like Rochester, Minnesota, and then I think it was like Cheyenne and Casper, Wyoming, and some other place, but I just remember it was one of these windy, yeah. windy places, and it gets cold and windy in the winter. And then, you know, when yeah, I went to school in Fort Collins, you know, just not far away from Cheyenne. Oh, you were, you were, you, you were, I mean, border, you get blown off the road. Yeah, CSU. Yeah. yeah. There were trucks that would get blown off the interstate all the way on I 25 and, you know, I 80 yeah. all the time. Up yeah. There. You know, the first time I realized how bad it can get there was I was driving on I 80 across through Wyoming and they have these little like, those like retractable arms that they have at railroad crossings. They had those out on I 80 because they have to close things down sometimes. They, it's just, yeah, you get an 18-wheeler out there with those wind gusts and not a good situation. Not when you mix snow and ice and rain and all that other stuff into the, into it, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was uh, – yeah, I tell you, I, 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 Wyoming's a nice place, but the winters are not, not fun in my view. But anyway, well, Travis, thank you so much for coming on. We've had a lot of uh, stuff on humans. We talk a lot about human obesity and human diet and nutrition. But, I mean, equally, are, we have, I think, 140 million – pets in the United States or something like that number and a lot of those guys are getting fat and sick too and I know uh, there's probably uh, some common reasons for that so tell us a little bit you are a veterinarian can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do and more specifically yeah you know I'm just a conventionally trained veterinarian I went to school at Colorado State about 25 years ago and um, I was the first class I had tracking so you could go small animal or large animal I did both and so made a little hard on myself. Um, but then uh, my first job was up in Palmer, Alaska, which is an interesting place to practice because I got to work on a variety of animals. We worked on a lot of dogs and cats, but we had a couple of dairies up there, believe it or not, um, but a lot of horses. And one thing that I got to spend some time, not a lot of time, but with the mushers, you know, with the sled dogs, which I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, years later, but um, I uh, was just conventionally trained uh, dealing with diabetes epidemic in cats. We call it the diabetes epidemic too, where their rates of diabetes and obesity are just going through the roof. And by some estimates from the 1980s till now, about a 500% increase. Um, we still don't have near the rate that they have in humans, but our, our rates are, are soaring. Um, but uh, I, I struggled mightily to treat these uh, cats. I did it exactly the way I was trained. I put them on a, uh, what I now consider to be massive dose of insulin, put them on a low fat, high fiber uh, diet that was also high in carbs. And I never really questioned it because, you know, it's what all the textbooks said, that's what all the experts said. And I struggled mightily with these cats for seven years. Um, could never keep their blood sugar stable. Their blood sugar would be sky high. 
uh, or be so dangerously low they'd be in a coma or die. Um, every once in a while, we could get a cat that would respond fairly well. And if you got to live for several years, you kind of patted yourself on the back about what a good job you did. But it was miserable. I mean, the blood sugars are never controlled. Uh, a lot of these cats would get neuropathies in their hind limbs. They'd have trouble walking. Uh, the owner's frustrated. I'm frustrated. The patient's doing terrible. I just, I absolutely hated that disease. And then um, just trying to be a good vet, reading my journals as they come out. And um, this stupid, ridiculous article came out, which I wouldn't normally waste time on, but I, I did read this article because I knew the, uh, the lead author. She was one of my instructors and she's brilliant. Her name's Dr. Greco. And um, she did the exact opposite. I mean, a 180, not just a little, but completely opposite. She uh, put these cats on um, canned food, very low carb, uh, moderate fat, and just minuscule doses of insulin. And her results were amazing, like nothing I had never experienced. And, um, you know, it kind of made sense on just general biochemistry. If we're having these cats that can't control their blood sugars, why would we give them all these starches that converts to sugar? And uh, within a couple months, I had uh, my next diabetic cat come in. And the uh, people were all scared and really concerned and, you know, asking me what we're going to do, what we're going to do. I'm like, well, we're going to start insulin therapy. And then, you know, for the diet, there's a traditional approach or there's this new approach. And they asked me, um, well, which one's best? I'm like, I don't know. Um, and then they kind of pin me down further. What would you do if it's your cat? And I said, if it's my cat, I'd do the new approach. It just makes sense. Um, and so I did it. And within a couple months, the cat was uh, completely reversed. Or I guess you have to be careful with that term right now. The cat was in remission. Uh, normal blood sugars, actually subnormal uh, blood sugars, no sugar in the urine. Uh, fructose mean is what we measure a lot. It's kind of like hemoglobin A1C for people, but it's a shorter duration, like two weeks. And uh, took the cat off insulin. The next cat, diabetic cat, did the same thing, complete remission. Next cat, complete remission, three in a row. And I was like, this is crazy because I struggled for seven years. So I sent my veterinary technician off to get some training. She came back all fired up. We switched everybody over and a couple years later we went and pulled all our files. I think we we're running like 70 some percent of our cats complete remission. So it was just an eye opener for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, cause the cats, the cats are freaking carnivore in the wild. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like we're feeding these, 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 these animals, you know, a diet they're just not evolutionary adapted to eat. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we put them on a more sort of normative diet, you know, or, or species appropriate diet and their health issues go away. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about cats and, and you can probably speak to this more than I do. I mean, you know, they have, you know, they do have some capacity, even though they're considered carnivorous animals, they do have capacity to handle carbohydrates. I mean, they have pancreatic amylase. Um, I've seen where they can handle, they can actually digest sugar. So they still have some conserved evolutionary capacity to do that, despite the fact that, that their genetic, their sort of their, you know, their evolutionary path led them to a more meat-based or carnivorous diet. Um, and that's one of the things that when we talk about how do we classify these animals based on their physiology, and I always hear the argument, well, people have salivary amylase. Well, I'm like, cats have pancreatic amylase, and no one's telling cats that they need to eat food and, you know, grains and stuff like that. Well, I guess the food companies do. <laughs> um, do you, I mean, you know, as a physician, you know, I always saw there's a lot of influence from uh, 
you know, uh, drug manufacturers trying to get you to use their products. And, you know, whether it's me as an orthopedic surgeon using implants, you know, to fix fractures or replace knees or prescribe these drugs or whatever. Do you, do you see a lot of that in the veterinarian world where, where, you know, they want you to, to, you know, or do you see a lot of funding from these companies that say, you know, we want you to eat this particular pet food or use these pet products? Yeah, it's the same as with you guys, Sean, but on a much smaller uh, scale, as far as like how much money they dedicate, there's not as much money in veterinary medicine as human medicine, but I was listening to one of your podcasts recently with Dr. Jason Fung. And I'm not, a, I'll admit, I've gotten more free steak dinners than almost any vet I know. I never passed up a chance to go to that. And I think uh, the food industry, the pet food industry, pretty smart. They, uh, it, I should just tell you about a book. It's called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma. It's by a guy named Daniel Shuloff. And, and when he writes in this book, he was describing my veterinary school experience. You know, uh, Hill Science Diet comes in and um, they kind of offer you free pet food and uh, they'll, you can sell the pet food to the classmates. You can make a little money and they put on pizza dinners. And yeah, so you get kind of uh, indoctrinated pretty quickly. And, um, you know, a lot of times really kind of reputable people involved. And so you, uh, you know, you're not at a stage in your career where you're really able to question things. So you kind of buy into it thinking you're already on the cutting edge, not realizing that you're missing the boat. Yeah, I remember when I was a medical student and, you know, we, you know, we were all these you know, young little medical students and we thought it was really cool when the drug companies would come in and they would give us free food and give us stuff. We thought we'd really made it because now we got people that care about us and want to treat us really good. But all they're doing is trying to buy our loyalty by these little silly things. And that's how it starts with this little, little indoctrination. You know, it starts back in your training where, oh, yeah, these guys are going to take, they're going to hook up, hook you up. Yeah, they think you're really special now because you got people that are, you know, out there giving you free stuff. And so it's kind of just, you know, it's very eye opening when you look back. At it. One thing, uh, do you see cats with cardiovascular disease, particularly atherosclerotic disease? Is that something you see in cats? Because I know there's, there's people in the vegan community that say that it's impossible for a carnivore to get atherosclerosis because only herbivores get that. I, I pulled a study that showed that, but it, you know, there was a study in the 19, I think mid-90s where they, where, they, where they demonstrated they could do that. But are you seeing any of that sort of thing happening in, in felines? You know, so in both dogs and cats, uh, we see a lot of heart disease, but it's not uh, like myocardial infarctions. It's not the atherosclerotic atheromas uh, type of lesions you see in people. So like when you just look at leading causes of death in uh, dogs, uh, number one is cancer. Uh, number two is kidney. And number three is, is heart disease. We can come back to heart disease in a minute. And, and then myopathy by far and away which I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I still think that could be related to the hyperinsulinemia and the hyperglycemia causing some fibrosis and, uh, you know, neurological problems uh, as well as, you know, just problems with the muscle itself. And, and then in dogs, um, the third leading cause of death is also heart disease, but in dogs, it's this, what I'm about to say sounds too simple to be true, but it's either like mitral valve disease or it's a dilatative cardiomyopathy. And if, if you have a dog that you could easily carry in one arm it, and it's got a heart disease, it's got a mitral valve problem. And if it's a big dog, you have to take you know, your strength with two arms to carry it, it's got dilatative cardiomyopathy. I, I, I know that's an oversimplification, but it's uh, shockingly pretty accurate. 
but I don't know why they don't get like the atheromas like people do. I mean, I've thought about this. I've had dogs with like uh, thyroid issues and other issues, um, you know, cholesterol, you know, 1200 and uh, they just never get myocardial infarction. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, I guess it would be interesting to look at, you know, those, what their diet is obviously would be important. You know, I've got a picture of this, you know, obviously tragedy behind me, this, you know, this huge overweight English bulldog that's, you know, obviously sick as can be. And some people think that's cute, but I mean, I think that's, that's really animal abuse in my view. But the nice thing, I guess, about dietary intervention in pets is, I mean, you know, the compliance rate is generally pretty good if you can, if you can get, convince the owner because, the owner's not worried about the dog's cravings or the dog's habits or the dog's social eating or emotional eating. It's like, here, eat this different slop now. And so what are you, how hard are you finding it is to get people to buy off into the, you know, change your dog's diet and, and then how does it seem to work? Well, I'll tell you, I have a little more trouble with dogs and cats. Um, you know, I, you had Dr. Unwin uh, on your show, um, which I'm a big fan of his work and I'm not trying to compare myself to him, but, I'm able to make a, apparently a pretty compelling case with cats when they come in, kind of like he's able to make a compelling case with his patients and let them choose. Um, and so I'm at a point now, honestly, Sean, right? Uh, what, what really enlightened me was reversing diabetes, but now I'm just preventing it. I have every cat that comes in. We have the nutrition talk. You know, we talk about their obligate carnivores. Um, out in nature, they're eating rabbits, rodents, mice, birds, squirrels. You know, when you analyze that diet, it's high protein, moderate fat, but it's extremely low carb. Um, and then here's the other thing about cats. Most of them, they, they evolve from the African desert cat, and there's not much water in the desert. So they're meant to get most of their moisture needs uh, through the, the animals that they catch, because little mammals are like big mammals are all close to 60-some percent moisture. You know, canned food is 70% moisture. Dry food's only 10. So like when we talk about macronutrients, there's fat, protein, carbs. But in cat, there's, cats are really, water has to be the fourth macronutrient um, because they're just meant to get their moisture from the food they eat. They just instinctively have a low thirst drive. Um, just not much water in the desert. So um, I, I was reading an article up to 90% of the African um, desert cat gets like 90% of their moisture needs come from the prey that they catch. And so I'm able to talk with people and I mean, I'll even have like a healthy, <laughs> well, you know, here's the classic thing. I'll, I'll be examining a cat I'm like, wow, so her eyes are good. Her ears are good. Body conditions good for, you know, everything's fine. And I'll ask, you know, what they feed and it's some kind of kibble. I'm like, Oh, whoa, whoa, we got, we got to work on that. And uh, we'll have the conversation. And they're like, Travis, you just told me she's healthy. I'm like, yeah, but do you want her to stay healthy? So although re re reversing diabetes is what kind of made me insane, if you will, uh, it's, it's become such a small part of my practice because I'm able to make a compelling argument for, or compelling case for people. And so I'm just preventing it most of the time. I mean, last time I ran my numbers, 83% of our diabetic cats were in complete remission off all insulin. Um, but it, honestly, I haven't run my numbers for a number of years. It's probably worse now because people find me on the internet and then uh, they come to me. And a lot of times I'm dealing with cats that have been mismanaged for a long period of time. And there's just not much beta cell function left in that pancreas to really reverse it. But I, I guess I got, I'm sorry, I strayed for your, from your topic. You're asking about dogs. Um, yeah. I mean, just in general, I just, I just wonder, you know, 
when we try to implement a diet in a human, I mean, it's, it's all kinds of stuff that's attached to that, you know, and, and because the animals don't really get much say, they don't, you don't really give an animal a menu and say, Hey, you know, you know, Hey Brutus, what do you want to eat today? I mean, you just give them their food and they got no choice. So, I mean, I, you know, I just imagine it's, it's a lot easier, you know? Well, yeah. To, and I think you're right about that. And that's why I just think as veterinarians, we have an opportunity. We could really contribute to the science here because we don't have to worry about our, patients walking by the donut counter, you know, at work and stuff. So we can, can totally control uh, what they eat. And I, I just think it gives us a big opportunity here. You know, I, there's a, this guy was telling me about the road, that book, Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma. I, I kind of think of him kind of like the Gary Tops of our field, you know, um, and that you need a, he, he's a, a, an attorney of all things, but he's got a passion for dogs and he's just going through the research and he's finding research I didn't even know existed, but like looking at these overweight beagles and they put them on weight loss diets and, you know, calories a calorie, but how come these dogs, when they're on the low carb, high protein diet, how can they lose twice as much weight? Why do they lose, you know, many more times of body fat? Why do they maintain their lean muscle mass? These are, this is research I didn't even know was available. I guess you have to have someone from outside the field, but it's just kind of like, um, in, in human medicine, these uh, silenced uh, studies are they're just not discussed. And I, I would like to, you know, talk with more colleagues and see if we can replicate this data because I think we could uh, maybe be a role model for getting better nutritional research in, in human medicine. Yeah, Travis, yeah, one, one thing I wanted to kind of follow up with you on was like, I think because nowadays we look at what our pets are eating and you ask any anyone out there like, well, what does your caddy, what does your dog eat? And the first thing they would probably think of is this big bag of dried up kibble. But, you know, we look at, you know, how these animals are behaving in the wild and what they're eating and it's drastically different. Or you even go to a zoo and you see what the big cats, they're feeding them there and they're feeding them meat for the most part, as far as I'm aware. Uh, when did we get to a point where it was like, okay, this is the new kind of standard practice of what we're going to feed our pets? Like when did that kind of transition into the kibble stuff versus feeding them essentially a species appropriate diet? Yeah, that's a good question, Zach. And I, I, I don't have a definitive answer, but my understanding is it was like around the 1980s is when um, cat kibble started becoming bigger. I think that's when uh, dry food started surpassing canned cat food sales. But I think dogs was maybe a couple decades before that. Um, but, you know, when you look at veterinary medical vet school, um, our nutrition training is, is similar to human medicine. It's just terrible. Um, it, you know, you, I think we had like maybe four or five hours. I was talking to a colleague. She told me it was eight hours and she pays attention to this stuff. But, um, you know, you're kind of taught like we've identified the essential amino acids, the essential fatty acids, the essential vitamins and minerals. And if you just cook the hell out of that stuff, throw it into a, whatever form you want, it's perfectly fine. You know, it's, 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 um, it's just little discussion. It's all calories in calories out from there. You know, you meet the essential requirements and, um, that's all you really need to know. And I, I just think it's, it's straight so far from, you know, a species appropriate diet. Uh, you know, like Kevin Hall just had his, uh, latest paper out on ultra processed food. I mean, there's nothing more processed than kibble, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, you, 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 in the human field, you can look at the nutrition orders. You got vegans on one side, you got the carnivores on the other, you got Mediterranean in between. 
and they have all these arguments or we all argue all the time sometimes violently but uh the one thing everyone agrees on is eat minimally processed food that's nutrient dense there's nothing more heavily processed than kibble you know just on a simple analogy uh you know you, you take a bowl of kibble you put it on the shelf you come back two years later it looks the same you know real food should rot you know you put some meat in a bowl it's gonna rot well, yeah, it's not going to last very long if my dogs are around, I can tell you that. But, hey, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I mean, dogs are basically, I mean, they're still wool. I mean, they're basically bred, bred from wolves. I mean, there's hybridized, I mean, they're, they're basically wolves. Uh, so, I mean, it would, you would, it would assume that they would have a very similar nutritional requirement to a wolf. Is that, is that in, inaccurate to say? No, I believe it's totally accurate, Sean. But this is why I'm getting sideways with all the academics is because, uh, there seems to be very little appreciation for that. And I'm, I'm just so disappointed. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just crazy, but when I, when I feed them like a wolf, you tend to get more of the phenotypic expression of a wolf. Leaner, muscular, more muscular, better teeth, better gums. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I, my, my clients get it, right? Uh, I just, and some of my colleagues do or don't, but it's just the academics I feel like I'm really arguing with nowadays on this stuff. Do you, do you know with like some of your patients who come in and switch their, their pet to a carnivore style diet, is there anyone who's tracking like well before, I guess maybe it's difficult because those bags of kibble, they kind of, my guess is they're very rudimentary estimates to how much energy they're getting from say a scoop of that. But do you have any info that would be indicative that they're feeding them essentially the same caloric value, but when it's the meat versus the kibble, they lean out and gain muscle and shed fat. Or when they have the kibble, they just kind of gain that fat and not really get stronger or anything, anything like that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like I say, there's uh, we have, you know, peer reviewed uh, literature looking at these changes, but I should tell you in that, in that research, I haven't gone through to read all the subsections, like if it was kibble or not, but in general, if you're going to have kibble, you gotta add a certain amount of carbohydrate to make these crunchy little brown balls. That's why, like in cats, I'm just, you know, pretty strict. It's not, not strict, but just try to be clear with people. It needs to be canned. You just can't make those crunchy brown balls unless you add enough carbohydrate. And this is gonna be too much carbohydrate. And, and I think the same diet is probably for dogs. You know, just based on that, like Sean was asking about wolves, and you look at the wolf data we have, especially out of Yellowstone, I mean, they're just, you know, apex predators. They're living off meat. And I just don't think you're going to be able to. I, there's lower carbohydrate kibbles. And there's one that I'm kind of excited about, but it's still just a kibble. I just, I just think it needs to be a more meat-based diet if you're going to try to mimic a natural species-appropriate diet. Hey, Trevor, this is a question that I often get. You know, there's some called, I think it's called the BARF diet, or, you know, it's like, I can't remember what it stands for, but it sounds awful. But I mean, it's basically raw food. I mean, raw, raw meat, raw meat, raw vegetables and bones. What are your thoughts on feeding dogs bones and raw meat and, and stuff and raw foods? What, what, what are the, what's the current? I mean, I know it's controversial. No, it is controversial. And I'll, and I'll give you my opinion. But just so you know, like uh, in the veterinary field, is not just opposed to these raw diets. They're violently opposed you know, and I, and I have quite a few clients that are uh, feeding raw with me. And I'm always very careful how I word myself, just to avoid a lawsuit. You know, I, if, if, if you choose, I, I feed raw to my dogs, I think it's best, but I don't recommend raw. If you choose to feed raw, I'll, I'll work with you. So I'm always just kind of careful to cover my butt like that. Um, 
but this, yeah, this, this BARF diet, biologically appropriate raw food is what it stands for. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Dr. Ian Billinghurst and he's from Australia. I actually went back and checked out his book and read it. And you know, I got to tell you, Sean, I think this guy is like Dr. Atkins. He pretty much had it nailed. But he's been vilified, you know, by the veterinary field, just like Dr. Atkins was just persecuted. Uh, but, you know, he was right. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I, I like the, one of the quotes, I hope I say it correctly, but it's like, you know, dogs and wolves, he goes, you know, they're basically genetically identical, but we've changed their uh, body size and shape, and we changed their minds, like how they react to people. But we didn't change the underlying biology. You know, they're still monogastric, so they still have a short intestinal tract, so they have insulin, leptin, ghrelin, cholecystokinin, neuropeptide. All the physiology is the same, right? Um, so yeah, we, we changed their size and shape in their minds, but we didn't change the physiology. I, I think that guy had it right, you know, and you know, and colleagues of mine listen to this, they're going to be just, they're probably turned off a long time ago. I'm not going to hear the rest of your podcast because <laughs> I it just kind of makes me look like a lunatic to think that you should look at evolutionary biology as a guide. Do you think there's anything, and maybe this is a little too conspiratorial, but like if people start putting their pets on, say, a barf diet or just even a, a meat diet, that there's just going to be a lot less need for veterinarians? <laughs> I do think so. I mean, I have this conversation with my clients all the time. You know, it's like, you know, if you take what I'm saying to heart and you actually implement it, just so you know, you're kind of killing my bottom line. You know, <laughs> all these things that keep me employed, you know, especially with cats, you know, like it's not just the, the diabetes and the obesity, but it's all these bladder stones and these inflamed bladders and cats also get non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We just call it fatty liver disease. It's, in cats, it's a little bit different. I mean, usually the classic for fatty liver disease in a cat is um, uh, it's an overweight cat, and they have some kind of illness, and then they're they're not eating for several days, and they'll get they'll create a fatty liver. So that the, the presentation is a little bit different with people. But I have a hundred uh, a couple hundred percent streaks that have yet to be broken, and they will be broken because a few things are hundred percent. But I have yet to have a cat get fatty liver disease as long as it's on a canned food diet. Uh, high protein, very low carb canned food diet. And in fact, I, I had an interesting case here about two years ago. A cat came in to me for a second opinion on this um, bloody urine and ended up finding some bladder stones that were missed um, by the other vet and did surgery. The cat immediately resolved, re resolved the, the issue. And as I explained to him, you know, um, here's some good news and bad news. The good news is as long as you do a uh, high protein, you know, can't appropriate canned food diet for life. There's a, there's a small chance, there's a very small chance that it's ever going to come back. But the bad news is if you would have done this diet from the start, you probably would have prevented them. And then he was asking me, what about my other cat? I'm like, Oh, thank God you brought that up. Okay. If once we, once we have a cat on this diet, I, I'm kind of, I, I, I mean, I work with people where they're at, but I try to be strict. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a kid in the house that has like a, a peanut allergy. There's just no peanuts in this home. Once you have a cat with a metabolic issue, uh, there's just no dry food in this house. It just has to be canned cat food only. Yeah, you can give them some meat and some tuna and, and stuff like that, but there's just no dry food in the house. And he's like, well, he was concerned because their other cat that they have, which I had never seen, was uh, an obese uh, middle-aged male. I'm like, oh, all the more reason, dude, because when you look at di obesity or diabetes in cats, you know, Middle-aged to older, overweight, and male are three of the big risk factors. So my, 
man, your cat's got all three from what you're describing. So yeah, just um, make sure you feed the same canned cat food to your, your, to the other cat. And it was nice. Several months later, he just sent me an email saying, Travis, you can't believe this cat. He's like thinned out and he's like, you could feel his muscles and you can climb to the top of his cat tree. Not only that, you could jump from there clear to the entertainment center, stuff that he's never seen before. This all ties back to fatty liver. I'm sorry. It's so long, but anyways, uh, and so I'd never met this cat. Right. And then he ended up bringing it to me many months later and ended up having uh, an intestinal foreign body that it had for like three days. Um, by the time it got to me, the cat was so debilitated. And it's right on a Friday afternoon. I'm like, Oh dude, we, I want to go straight to surgery. That's kind of my favorite surgery to do. But it's like, um, we can't, the cat's too debilitated. We got to give IVs and get this cat stabilized and send him to the emergency clinic, which they did the surgery and they did a good job. But then he comes back to me several days later, still not eating. So this cat is without food for six days. And I thought, oh my gosh, here's going to be my first fatty liver in a cat. Um, but you know what? The cat never did get fatty liver, got the cat eaten. And uh, I just don't think if that cat would have been on kibble the whole time, it ever could have gone like you know, six days without food, without getting fatty liver disease. So kind of a neat story, I thought. Yeah, is that, do you see that with your with your patients that are doing like say the barf diet or just even a carnivore diet where they're feeding larger quantities but less less uh or more periodically like you know like a two-day fast or three-day fast but a bigger meal when they do have it okay so you're asking a really good question zach and i should tell you i have I spent a lot of time i spent a fair amount of time on this i've been really disappointed in what i've been finding but I, here's uh, this meal frequency deal you know, so I'm all, if you're kind of following evolutionary biology, uh, cats, you know, they probably around six mice a day. So you catch a mouse or two, they take a nap, you catch another mouse or two, take a nap. They're probably eating like four to five times a day. Um, but obviously, like now the big cats would be different, right? Like in Africa, because or, or cougars here in North America, you know, they make a kill, they gorge themselves and then eat some more next day and they may not eat for a while. But in in, in small domestic cats, it looks like they're probably better off eating, you know, small meals frequently, which I don't like that answer because I feed my cat once a day. But um, on dogs, I've just really found very little at all to support feeding frequency. But if you look at um, evolutionary biology as a wolf model, you know, when they, when they kill that elk, you know, a pack wolves kill the elk, they just gorge themselves. They eat like up to 22 pounds of meat. Then they go puke it up and eat it back down. You know, they'll gorge for a couple of days, and then there's just little nibbles for a couple of days, and then they're going to be without food for several days. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Here in Minnesota, there's a wolf preserve. One of my clients who's a big raw food feeder has been up there and to the behind-the-scenes tour, and they do whole carcass feeding, and uh, that's what they try to do. They mimic it. They they drag in a – they unthaw a frozen deer that was hit by a car and uh, unthaw it and drag it into the pen, and that's all they get once a week. And so I've thought about this feeding frequency a lot. I wish I could point to some good literature and maybe someone's done the research and I just haven't found it yet. Yeah. It's interesting. You point out that 22 pounds because I saw that before when I was doing research on one of our past guests, Molly Schuyler, who's a human who has had 22, who's eaten 22 pounds of meat in one feeding. And that's, you know, like a gray wolf, which is about 140 pounds, about the same size as her. She's a little smaller than that. I thought that was kind of an interesting stat that they, that they can eat 22 pounds at one time. And so, and that's true. I mean, my dogs, 
I mean, my, you know, I've got a uh, little English golden retriever, about 50 pounds, and she'll eat, I mean, she will eat as much food as I put down. So I, I kind of have to, you know, cause, you know, you, you hear the hurt, you, you, you always hear that term wolfing it down because that's what they do. They just go, go, go until it's all gone. You know, until they, I mean, I don't know when they stop, what would cause them to stop, but I would imagine, yeah, I mean, that just makes sense. If they've got a big kill, they eat the thing until they're full and then they, you know, probably go down and lay down for a couple hours and then they, you know, kind of hang out until they catch the next animal, which is, which is probably not, you know, probably not un unrealistic. Hey, let me ask you about, uh, this is interesting. There's this phenomenon of uh, sort of feeding our pets vegan dog food, vegan cat food. Do you have any thoughts on what happens to the animals when that, that occurs? Are you seeing that? very much in your practice? No, I haven't seen it all other than just reading about it. And there's like some humane society out in Hollywood where they're going to try to turn the human. I just think it's a terrible idea. Um, you know, cats are obligate carnivores. Dogs are in the order of carniv carnivore, but they are kind of facultative omnivores. But I think, it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to have my mind changed. Let's see some good randomized control clinical trials that's showing that uh, they can. They don't get essential fatty acid deficiencies, amino acid deficiencies, you know, vitamin mineral imbalances. I mean, it's just like the way I, according to the way I was taught nutrition, I guess it should, as long as it uh, complies with meeting the amino acids and the vitamins and minerals, I guess, and it goes by what's called the AAFCO, the American Association of Field Control Officials, I guess like kind of like the, the food plate for us. Um, I guess, you know, on paper, you could make it look good. But I, what I really care about is what happens in in uh, the real world. I, what I really care about is clinical outcomes. And so you, I'm sure you could design a di diet that would be vegan, and on paper, it would look fine. But I would really question how it performed in the real world. And I would want to see some good trial evidence before anything like that gets implemented. Yeah, I mean, particularly with cats. I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, I mean, they've got just, I mean, they are obligate carnivores. And I mean, even I, I would say there's probably compounds in, in meat that we don't even realize yet that's uh, beneficial. You know, and we, you know, some people talk about tar, taurine and, you know, obviously some of the essential, essential fats that are very challenging to get outside of animal food. And some of the vitamins like, you know, uh, D and K that uh, have their, their animal specific uh, variants. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it seems a little bit kind of cruel to the, to the animals. This episode of HPO is brought to you by BioOptimizers. They have identified over 130 research studies showing this to be a powerful way to upgrade your keto digestion, energy, and fat loss goals. Some keto pitfalls include constipation, lack of energy for peak exercise, and fat loss plateaus. BioOptimizers offers a possible solution called K-Apex. What K-Apex does is three things. First, breaks down the fats you eat into fatty acids using a proprietary lipase and dandelion extract blend. This means you're breaking down the dietary fat into usable energy. Second, they transport those fatty acids into the muscles and in the liver, and they have several ingredients that dramatically increase the fatty acid oxidation inside your mitochondria, both in your muscle and liver. Simply put, you're transporting fuel into your motor and you're increasing your motor's horsepower. They recommend three to five capsules of K-Apex in the morning on an empty stomach for energy similar to a cup of coffee that can last six to 10 hours without the nervous system stimulation. Smooth bowel movements and fat loss when coupled with a calorie deficit can be expected. It's not magic, but some research behind shows that it does help raise metabolic rate and other fat loss hormones. 
try it for yourself when you go to www.kenergize.com forward slash human. That's K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E dot com forward slash human. All one word. You'll automatically get 20% off any package of K-Apex with coupon code HUMANKX, all one word. Now, back to the show. Um, are you seeing, uh, I mean, what's going on in the animal world? I mean, in the, U- in, the, in the U.S. population, we see the obesity epidemic continuing to go up. I mean, it's not, you know, they were thought, they thought there was a time when it slowed down, but no, but it's going back up again. Are we seeing the same thing in pets? I mean, obviously, I got a picture of an obese dog behind me, but are you seeing that becoming more and more prevalent, or is it, or is it sort of plateaued, or what's been your, your, your impression over the last decade or so? Well, first of all, yeah, the, the trend is the same as people, um, but I always kind of question the data, but just what I'm seeing clinically, uh, I think the, the, the data we have is right. They're following the same trend that people are. Um, you know, when I, I go to these conferences, like you go to conferences and they always have these sheets they want you to fill out and they're always like, you know, suggested topics. And um, I put on the same thing every freaking time, nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. So finally I went to a conference last year and here they have this um, well-known person out of a university. And um, I mean, she's double boarded. She's got a PhD. Uh, she's the one teaching vet students about nutrition. And I was so excited to finally go to a conference where they're going to have a lot of nutrition. And um, Sean, it was just so disappointing. I mean, uh, she admits that cats are obligate carnivores and then spends the whole rest of the hour talking about how they can digest carbs. I think you were touching on that earlier. Yeah, so like, yeah, they they can digest the carbs. They don't have the salivary amylase, but they still have the pancreatic amylase. And they don't have the same complement of hexokinase and glucose, the glucokinase to phosphorylate the glucose once it gets in the cell. But if they've been on a high carbohydrate diet long enough, they can upregulate certain systems. And, um, Man, if this is the future, uh, so when, when in her estimation, these rates of obesity are going higher, and it's just basically the calories in, calories out. I mean, she has a slide. I have a photo of it on my phone. It's all calories in, calories out. No mention about the quality of calories and how those calories affect the hormones and their satiety. And then, and then I need someone like this uh, attorney to write a book like this to show me the data that we have randomized controlled trials on dogs showing on the same calories, they lose more fat mass, they maintain more muscle mass. I mean, but this is the new wave of veterinarians coming out with this kind of teaching. I, I just fear that we're going to continue to follow along the human trend. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes this really interesting because, you know, we, when we talk about the, you know, obesity in human population, we talk about, you know, uh, we're less active. We spend more time in front of TV screens. We sit more. Uh, you know, there's all these, you know, we eat more calories and stuff like that. But I mean, really pets, I mean, they don't really do anything different than they did 100 years ago, I would assume. I mean, it's not like the, the pets are watching TV more than they did 100 years ago. I mean, they would roughly still have the same activity level, I would assume. Uh, you know, maybe they got so sick and fat now that they can't move as much. But I mean, I just, I, I mean, I just don't know that there's been a a sort of uh, reason for us to feed our dogs more than we used to. I mean, do, do some people all of a sudden think, well, now I got to feed my dogs three times a day instead of two times a day, like I did in the 1950s. I mean, this is where I, you know, I guess, you know, we are seeing, obviously 
I mean, I don't know what the dog food was like a hundred years ago. I mean, you probably have more insight in that than I do and how that has evolved. And again, we've got this ultra processed kibble, which is just, as you said, it's just kind of the equivalent to our junk food basically. Yeah. You know, um, there's so many things to say here, but I, you know, one of your podcast guests, Tucker Goodrich, and I'm a fan of him and his work. And I, I, you know, I spent, you know, part of my backstory, I was getting overweight and uh, as I'm getting all these cats reversing their diabetes and getting them slim, I'm getting fatter and fatter as the Atkins craze. So I cut my carbs and uh, effortlessly lost the weight. And um, so then I was kind of thinking it was all about carbs, 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 but Tucker has really made me do some deep thinking on this with this linoleic acid and, um, all these oxlams, these oxidative linoleic acid metabolites. And I do just think that we are, it could further dysregulate the fat tissue and impulse also just the hypothalamus and, you know, all the satiety centers. So, I, but, you know, kind of going back to Zach's question, uh, when you ask about the activity levels. So that's one of the things that's proposed for causing the obesity epidemic, at least in cats, is, uh, you know, up to the 70s, cats mostly be in most we're mostly indoor outdoor and now they're mostly indoor. So it's just calories in calories out, you know, but I just, I just don't believe that because when I get my cats from fat to um, a more appropriate body weight with improved muscle mass, uh, there's no exercise involved. It's all diet. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I, I just, it sounds like an easy answer. Yeah. They're just activity, but I agree with you. And you know, the other thing with, with dogs, I just, I, over the years, I just like classic mistake I made. I never forget. But it's like uh, this um, dog, you know, is slowly gaining weight, and um, I'm talking to her about calorie control, and uh, I'm, I'm saying, you know, maybe we could get a little more exercise in this into this dog. And she looked at me with her jaw kind of dropped. She goes, "More exercise?" I'm like, "Yeah." She goes, "I've been training for a marathon. This dog's doing 20 to 30 miles a week with me." <laughs> oh, I just felt like a like an idiot. And then, um, then on the other hand, and then I'm, you know, like watch the treats, but then I'll have another dog come in. It's just ripped, shredded, jacked, you know? And I'm like, Holy cats, you know, what are you feeding this dog? You know? And, and it's usually some kind of kibble, but then I'm like, what do you do for activity? And she'll be like, you know, if I could do nothing else, but just go to the backyard and throw the ball for five minutes, a couple times a day. And so I've, I've thought a lot about this hit training, but I want to kind of ask you guys about that. Um, you know, on your show when you had Dr. Reed's on, you talked about how he co-authored a book. He was talking about Fred Hahn from Slow Burn. And then, I don't know, you guys familiar with Dr. Doug McGuff? Mm hmm And then, so have you guys, I mean, I know you guys are like the, kind of at the extreme end of, of fitness, but I'm, I'm just kind of wonder. like, I just think there might be some low-hanging fruit for a lot of people that could just make it to the gym once or twice a week for 20 minutes, like, uh, I th I feel like I'm seeing it in my pets more in the dogs and cats, but like just these high intensity interval training as far as like sprinting with dogs. But I just wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that for people on that, like the one set to failure kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can certainly comment on the human side. I mean, I, you know, I think with the dogs and cats, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you think about it, what, a, what would drive activity in a cat or a dog would probably be either prey or, or predator type activity, which would mostly be in those types of animals sprinting. So, I mean, it would make sense, you know, with, with regard to what they would naturally be doing athletic-wise. I, I don't think anybody thinks cats are endurance hunters. I mean, they're just not. They just they kind of stalk and then they, they burst out there. And I think dogs 
probably are very similar. I think, you know, maybe some of the African wild dogs, I know they run in packs and they, ch- they chase down or whatever. Siberian husky or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, the huskies, I don't know. I mean, because, well, you talked about the, uh, the Iditarod dogs, which is kind of interesting. And there's some data out there. And I think Bullock has actually done some of that work looking at how they fed them. And those dogs that are just eating meat-only diets perform the best, which I think is very interesting. But back to your question about the Doug McGuff or the Body by Science stuff. I mean, yeah, I think that's a, that can be a very effective tool for a lot of people, and it is minimal. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of proponents of that. Um, I think it depends on your ultimate goals. Uh, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. And, uh, you know, is it, is it the absolute best for everybody? I'm not convinced it is. I mean, I think it may be for some people, but there's other people that respond to more volume than that. Uh, and I, you know, I probably am one of them, but, uh, certainly, you know, if you've got 15 minutes twice a week, you can get, you can get it in, you can get, you can get probably 90% of it in. And then we are, then we start arguing around the, you know, the 10%, which is probably for most people irrelevant, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing that kind of, kind of parallels what we were talking about with just like the food, the food quantity side of things too, is I wonder if like, at least like if I'm trying to think like what maybe that person who was presenting who was saying calories and calories out there, their thought process might be now that food is relatively cheaper for humans. Maybe these pets are getting more kind of free handouts and scraps from, you know, from the, from the, on top of their, their nutrition that they would have been getting or the kibble that they would have been getting just historically. And when you think about it, you also, you move from like a canned food product, which is going to be relatively more expensive than the kibble uh, you might just see people getting a little more liberal with how much they're feeding too. And then that could have a, a similar effect. So it'd be a, the person problem more so than the, than the pet problem. Um, and then kind of along the same lines with the exercise, uh, if the owners are getting more lazy, it probably limit, <laughs> limits the opportunity for the pet to get out too. Like, especially now when, you know, I don't think we necessarily see exercise the same way as we would have a few decades ago. So if someone might decide to go for a long walk for exercise and take the dog with them, whereas maybe now they are, they're not going to do that. They're going to maybe go to the gym or something like that where they're not going to be able to bring the dogs. The dog's just getting a bare minimum walk instead. And I think maybe goofy little things like that could, could be part of it too. No, that's interesting. It's funny you say it because uh, that on my way to work, a lot of times I go by this garden area and I'll see uh, a car driving there and on this gravel road dogs running next to the car yeah. <laughs> <laughs> better to take their dog for a walk so they could drive their car you know but having said that i mean i've had a lot of clients and and patients uh have a successful weight loss journey and just by simply walking mm-hmm. you know i do think it accelerates the the physical performance of the dog if they walk to the park and then just throw the tennis ball in so they get some sprinting and then walk back to the house but i mean it's it's good for the owner. It's good for the pet. And I obviously physically, metabolically, but I just sometimes wonder too, it's hard to quantitate, but what about the mental health? I think there's something there too. You know, the yeah. snack, gosh, you're asking about, I, I gotta tell you, I think that is a problem. You know, like, you know, you guys get all geeky on some of your shows, but you know, that hormone sensitive lipase, if you're going to break down those triglycerides in your adipose cells and you're going to release free fatty acids, so you can burn some fat and you would know this from your endurance training. You don't want to be spiking your insulin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that shut down fat burning quicker than that. Um, yeah, and then, you know, and you were talking about with the Huskies and Volick study. I, I mean, I, I think in that faster study, Zach, you'd know better than me, but it's like 1.6 grams per minute. They got some athletes oxidizing fat. Yeah. Uh, 
or Jeff Goldberg's yeah. name. It's nothing compared to like a Husky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like, and the parameters for that study too were, uh, I would say maybe a little more relaxed than, than what we've seen in some of the more recent ones where it was like a 10% carbohydrate allowance essentially. And um, yeah, I think, I think I had 1.56 and that was like kind of right in the middle of the 10 folks on the high fat, low carb approach. And I want to say there was a guy who was up to like 1.8 or something like that on there. So for folks listening, like the perspective would have been the literature before that would have been indicative of 0.9 to 1.0 grams per minute being kind of like off the charts or that one dot at the very edge where like you're, you're kind of surprised to see. So to get folks up into the, you know, 50% or in double in that guy who had 1.8s um, experience that's a pretty drastic difference. And then, yeah, the Huskies were, well, the interesting thing about the Huskies too, was I was actually talking to Volok about that when I was at the faster study. And cause I think that's when that right around when that first started kind of coming out and he was saying the real interesting thing was when they, they were testing these, these Iditarod dogs and their muscle glycogen was actually higher at the end of the test than it was when they started it, even though they did the entire Iditarod race or something like that, if I'm remembering right which is, um, you know, obviously we're talking about dogs versus humans, but you're feeding them. These Iditarod dogs are not, they're not eating, they're not carbo loading. <laughs> they're eating meat. And uh, the running joke with uh, the Iditarod mushers was when some of these guys get into full-blown training with their dogs, you know, they're eating absolute garbage because they're trying to eat on a budget so they can afford to feed these dogs like high quality stuff, like, cause they're the athletes essentially at that point. No, I think that's fascinating. I, I read some similar research like that was like that. Yeah, at, even at the end of that, like a huge race, they weren't glycogen depleted, which was kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I, when I was in Alaska, the, the mushers, they're a pretty independent group, by the way, and they don't seek out much veterinary care unless they have to, like uh, like rabies vaccine has to be done under veterinary supervision. But but one of the poorly kept secrets is one of the best meat uh, food sources for racing was uh, beaver. You know, and a beaver is like one of the fattiest meats you can get. And I don't know if I, I, I don't know if it was cooked or uh, raw, but yeah, that was a poorly kept secret that beaver is the best um, competition meat because of the high fat um, content. <laughs> yeah, I think I think because I remember somebody talking about eating beaver, and they said it was. <laughs> be careful with that, but um, <laughs> they were talking about uh, the tail being the fattiest part, so they really had to take out the beaver's tail as where where. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they find most of the fat in that animal. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things I was going to say is I'm really just kind of surprised that there is such pushback in the general veterinarian community against, you know, feeding these animals what would normally people would think a really appropriate diet. I mean, why, why do you think that is? I mean, where is that coming from? Because I can understand it in humans because, you know, we're kind of attached to foods and there's cultural stuff and there's obviously a lot of industry to put in there. But where, where is it coming? Because, I mean, the dogs and cats are happy when you feed them meat. I mean, they just love it. I mean, they're happy animals. But why do you think we're seeing, a, a, you know, kind of a sort of a pushback among the, the general academics and so on and so forth in the veterinarian community? Yeah, well, I don't know as an honest answer, but like when it comes to the raw food, it's like you, inter- you interview, you guys interviewed that veterinarian from UC Davis, that dairy vet, you know, and you asked about raw milk, you know, and he was kind of, you know, pretty opposed to it, which that's just the way we're trained, you know, I mean, we're taught like, um, you know, you give them raw food, they're going to get salmonella, E. coli, listeria, campylobacter. I mean, the list goes on and on, which 
it's, which is, uh, you know, I, like I say, I'm careful not to promote raw diets, but if, if people choose it, I'll work with them. But, uh, and I'll tell you how I, I kind of came to that because I would see a dog in the clinic and I'm just like, man, he's, he's ripped. He's awesome. He's in great condition, great teeth. I, I mean, everything's fine. And then I'll ask them, you know, like, what are you feeding? And they're like, I'm on a raw diet, you know, and, you know, I would give them a pretty good lecture just the way I was trained to do, you know, and I, I don't know how many of these people quit me, but I don't know, I don't know why they stayed with me, honestly. And then they come in next year and I'm just kind of shaking my head. And then finally, after seeing this year after year, just the phenomenal health in these dogs, I finally got smart and I asked like, okay, how do you, how, how are you doing this? And Sean, these people would light up. Oh my God, you can't just go throw, throwing raw hamburger or raw chicken. It's got to be balanced. You got to get the bones. You got to get the organs. You got to get the muscle meat. And uh, you got to read this book, this book, this book, this blog, this website. And so it was like, I'm learning all this from my clients, right? Because there's nowhere in peer-reviewed veterinary literature you're going to learn any of this. And which maybe for a reason, maybe it's all hocus pocus, but I don't know. You just can't see these dogs year in, year out, just performing and looking so good. Um, and, uh, so, and I, I remember when I finally tried it, I was just scared to death of this foodborne illness, you know? Um, and I mean, I, I just assume every time I'm buying raw chicken, like I just was feeding some recently and I buy those chicken quarters at Walmart, 10 pound bag. And I just assume every bag is contaminated with salmonella or campylobacter. But how come the dogs don't get ill? Well, it's because of the pH of their stomach. I mean, this create an incredible amount of acidity. So I can understand, I mean, I think that's the pushback from, the uh and and then here's the thing so like okay you give your dog salmonella now it's gonna hop in bed with the kids and the kids are gonna get salmonella so i think it's from you know public health standpoint and this is the way we're trained i mean i used to worry about it i kind of you know just a little throw caution to the wind too much i no longer worry about that i just think their their gi track is 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 you know prone to handling it but it's a big deal like now if you have a service dog and you go into hospitals uh, they're not allowed to be a service dog and go into hospitals if they're fed raw food. So my clients that do that just lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a real human health effect, but that's what, that's what the, they would have you believe. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, if we look at the, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the comparative anatomy on different animals and we look at, you know, wolves and, and predatory cats and stuff like that and their gastric pH is, you know, two, two and a half, something like that. But even, even humans are even lower than, than those animals, which is really surprising. And so, you know, I think, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think that very acidic environment probably neutralized. That's why we have it. I mean, that's why we energetically use, uh, we create that acid stomach is to, you know, help kill some of these pathogens we, we were obviously would have been exposed to in the wild as we evolved over a period of three million years as humans and, you know, twenties of millions of years as cats and dogs or however long they've been. I'm not sure. Well, dogs, I mean, obviously recent, but I mean, wolves and cats, big cats would have been around for tens of millions of years. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, why didn't all these animals die of, of, of uh, infection or disease, you know, particularly, you know, if you're getting infected, you know, presumably you're getting meat that's been, uh, you know, if you're not getting always getting fresh kills, which they probably weren't, then you're exposed to this on a regular basis. So it's kind of interesting. You know, my, my favorite thing is uh <laughs> course they're dying off now but when i get some old elderly people get to meet them um you know and hear their story and typically they grew up on a farm then i always like to ask you know did you have dogs and of course every 
farm had dogs, you know, and I ask them, you know, what kind of dog food did you feed? I just like to tease them. Dog food. There was no dog food. Well, I guess there was some, it was expensive. I'm like, okay, so what did you feed them? They ate what we ate, you know, and all these, I mean, but, but if you talk to the veterinary nutritionists in our field, uh, one of the pushbacks like for feeding meat, what you're asking about is because meat's high in phosphorus, there's not enough calcium. If you don't get the calcium and phosphorus perfectly balanced in both the amounts and the ratios, you're going to F this dog up for the rest of his life with metabolic bone disease. And I mean, uh, for real, it's metabolic bone disease is a, a significant problem if they don't have things right, especially going through that growth phase, particularly with the large and giant breed dogs. And I've had a number of clients now feed these raw puppies um, right out of the gate that raw, and I'm just scared to death. I just tell them, honestly, I mean, I, I feed raw. I think it's probably best, but I, I don't recommend it. But if you're going to do it, but by God, I think you should feed a, a kibble <laughs> until they're done with their growth phase and none of them want to do it. And I'm holding my breath every time and I have yet to see a problem, but it probably it'll happen here someday, but I have yet to see it. But I think as long as a lot of these people are following the prey model, it's a 80, 10, 10, 80% meat, 10% bone, 10% organ. But I'm, I always get nervous. When I get interviewed like this, Sean, like people are going to come out and uh, accuse my profession is going to accuse me of proponent of, of raw diets. Like I say, I, I, I don't recommend it, but I'll, I'll work with you if you're going to do it. Cause I want people to do it right. I, I do want it to be as balanced as it can. Are you, are you picking certain types of meat like beef versus pork versus chicken? Or are you just spreading that out? I know you said like there's the bone and the organ component, but are you, are, are is there a, a better of the three, I guess? You know, it's interesting you asked this, Zach, because I've been doing a lot of research on this. And here's the honest answer. I don't know. But I think it's probably makes some sense to rotate protein sources, which I see a lot of people advocate for. But, um, you know, thanks to Tucker Goodrich, I got in touch with this veterinarian over in uh, Africa who uh, runs like these cheetah preserves, um, you know, where they have orphaned or injured cheetahs and uh, talking about the dietary problems. And it was amazing research they did. It was like with uh, liquid chromatography, mass spectroscopy, looking at the free fatty acid. Here's a short answer. Uh, is <laughs> they do best on ruminant meat. Now, that might vary by cat by cat, but those cheetahs, it's mostly ruminants that they're eating. You know, when I say that, I live here in Minnesota. In northern Minnesota, we have the lynx, and that's mostly off of... I, my understanding is they eat almost exclusive, not exclusively, but, but, but predominantly rabbits, you know, and that's a hindgut fermenter. So I would have different fatty acids than like a ruminant with a foregut fermenter. Um, because yeah, one of the problems they're showing in these cheetahs is if they're feeding them like zebra and horse meat, they didn't have as good a health outcomes if they were getting ruminant meat. And they could tell the difference by the fatty acid profile in the serum. It was pretty fascinating stuff. Thanks to Tucker for that one. Yeah, interesting. And many people don't know that horses are, are not ruminants. They're hanging for fermenters as well. But um, what was I going to ask? Shoot, I just, I just uh, had a question, but I, but I, but I lost it there. Um, Zach, you got anything? Um, let's see, what was I going to ask? Oh, do you have any, uh, I, would think, I can't remember if I listened to this or if I read it somewhere, but it was someone looking at a raw food diet was saying that like their dog's coat would get more shiny when they switched it to the raw food diet. Is that something any of your patients come back and report that their quality of their fur improves or? 
Yeah, the, the quality of the fur and then the poop. Uh, and those are the most consistent changes, I'd say. And I remember listening to a veterinary nutritionist just uh, kind of going off on these raw diets. And she goes, if I have one more client trying to show me pictures of their dog's poop on their phone, it's going to scream. You know, it's like <laughs> no one knows what a normal poop looks like. I mean, Zach, you're out in those trail runs. You've probably seen some coyote poop. You know, it's this chalky white stuff with a little bit of hair. You yeah. Know? most people know what a normal what a normal bowel movement looks like all they know is what a kibble bowel movement looks like with all this you know fiber and healthy whole grain crap you know it's like people don't know what a normal poop looks like and it is fascinating i mean i i remember i took some photos like that in my own backyard on that journey yeah one of the things i appreciate because i feed my dogs raw meat and uh, they, they don't poop as often there's not as much and it's definitely a lot a lot easier to deal with but the yeah i remember what i wanted to ask you uh, bones, because there's controversy about feeding dogs bones, you know, whether raw bones or cooked bones or anything like that, or feeding bones at all, you know, whole bones, because they can, you know, there's a potential for an intestinal obstruction. Uh, what are your thoughts on bones? Okay, yeah, so that's another thing, but my field is deathly against bones. Uh, but if, you, if you're going to feed, uh, you know, a homemade diet or a raw diet, it is critical to have a source of calcium in there. They need the bones. Otherwise, it is not balanced. And that, I think that's the biggest mistake that people make with homemade diets in general is usually the calcium phosphorus, um, which like we said, in a, in a large breed growing pup, that is crucial. Um, but even in, in adult maintenance, I think it's important. And so, you, you know, Sean, I wish I could tell you I could point to the peer-reviewed literature and get answers to these things. I'm not. So I'm getting the answers the same way everyone else does from people that write books and from the internet. But Here's where I'm right now. You, you can use bone meal, and that's fine. I don't think that's controversial. But um, if you're going to do bones, um, and, and that's what I do. I go to my butcher shop, and I buy a 30-pound case of uh, turkey necks. I bought chicken necks, too. Um, but those non-weight-bearing uh, bones, uh, you know, you can cut them with a knife. I mean, they digest. Cooked bone does not. And I've done a lot of surgeries on dogs, taking pork rib bones, uh, cooked chicken bones out of dogs, uh, mostly dogs, but I guess a couple cats. Um, so cooked bone is not digestible. It does not digest well. It's, it crystallizes or something happens and you get those sharp spiky points. So um, a, lot, a lot of raw feeders, they say you could do bone meal, but the purists say, no, you got to get some kind of raw bone that they can chew on. I know when I put a deer carcass in my yard, it's funny, the dogs eat the the sternum off and the ribs up to a certain point, you know, but they don't eat like the femurs and the tibias, you know, those big weight bearing bones. If you are going to do the big bones, that's even more controversial yet. They're called rec bones, like rec, like recreational, but also rec, like wrecks their teeth. But if you are going to do large recreational bones, um, that's every specialist in our field recommends you don't do that. But if you're going to do it, um, make sure it's raw. I think it, that bone has a little give, which you would probably know, from your orthopedic surgery, you know, raw bone is just put a screw into a raw bone versus a cooked bone. Um, it's just, you know, raw bone has a different texture and give. Yeah, I mean, what I've heard is, you know, the cooked bones are definitely out for that. And, you know, some people talk about don't give, I think it was chicken bones, maybe because they spike more or something. I can't remember the, you know, the, the differences in there. Hey, what, um, we kind of we touched on this a little bit with this with the skin and the coats, but what conditions? I mean, because you know you talked a little bit about diabetes and metabolic disease. What conditions are you seeing that they're common in pets 
that diet does seem to impact besides just diabetes? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it affects everything, Sean, you know, just like with people, it's not controversial to say, you know, you need good nutrition for good health. Um, it's just that in my field, there's just very little appreciation for what really um, is considered good nutrition. Um, but I, I, the, the things that people see is, is the teeth, especially if they're doing the raw bone, like turkey necks or ribs, bones. Um, the, the coat we talked about, the coop we talked about. The allergies is how I kind of got into this. One of my, uh, well, she wasn't a client, she was just a friend. Um, and she was kind of always really into the holistic stuff. So she never used me because uh, I was more conventional at the time and still mostly unconventional. But uh, she had this dog, just five-year-old golden retriever. It had iatrogenic Cushing's disease. And the reason I had iatrogenic Cushing's disease because the massive amounts of steroids that had to be given this dog just so this dog would not chew her body and mutilate her body. So she was on constantly prednisone and antibiotics. She'd been to two different board-certified veterinary dermatologists for intradermal skin testing, hyposensitization. Uh, it just everything failed. And then um, she went on a raw diet, and she brought this dog into me a couple years later just to say hi. And I, I would have accused her of switching dogs. you know. And that dog lived to be 17. I mean, this is a dog at age five was going to have uh, you know, a very shortened life. Um, and having said that, uh, I have never seen a case like that since then either. And I'm frustrated because one of my dogs, uh, he's never had kibble in his whole life, but he does have allergies. So a couple of times, so there's a couple of weeks in the spring and the fall every year where he's chewing at his paws and I have to give him medications. And I'm a little frustrated by it because I was really thinking allergies. I still think it might be an area of application, but I just would like to see something. I'd like to see it more studied. I'd like to see something a little more definitive. Do you ever see, and some people talk about that, that people, they look like their pets. Do you find that, you know, you, you can see an owner and, you know, an unhealthy looking owner and then they've got an unhealthy pet. Do you see, do you see any correlation with that? You know, I do, Sean. But then here's the other thing is too, it's like, so when I get these clients in and they come to me because like the words out that if you're going to feed a raw diet, Travis won't give you a hard time and he'll work with you. So I get these people that have been dealing with health problems um, and their dog's dealing with problems and they go on a raw food diet or, or with the cats, a low carb, high protein canned diet. And the cat gets remarkably thin, uh, and muscular and, and same thing with the dogs. And then, uh, these, these the people just don't seem to get the logic that, yeah, if you would cut the carbs and the vegetable oils, <laughs> increase the meat that you might, you know, but some people do and some people don't. I, I've seen every combination. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, it's, you know, as a physician in the human, you know, realm, we kind of, kind of get, sort of think that vets know more. I mean, I mean, they, they at least think about nutrition, but it's kind of sad to hear you saying that most people, even in the vet community, don't really give it much more than, you know, feed your dog. I mean, you, because the dogs can't talk and you got to talk about something, you ask them what you're feeding them. But I mean, the fact that, you know, you, you make the, the sort of the comment about nutrition almost in passing is something to talk about, but, but the, the nutrition generally is uh, kibble and uh, other, you know, just inappropriate food, which is kind of, kind of a little bit disheartening. You know, one question I wanted to ask you guys, you, you talked about your dog, but I wanted to ask Zach what he asked for dogs. Cause I always kind of 
smile when I hear you guys' podcast and hear one of your dogs going off. I just wanted to ask Zach <laughs> what kind of dogs he has and if he runs with his dogs. Yeah, so I when I my I have a dog, but it wasn't mine to begin with. So it's mine now. It, my my wife uh, when when we got married, I acquired an older border collie mutt mix. I think it's uh, um, like a border collie spaniel mix. So she's about eleven, Stella, uh, and she's uh, pretty good health for an eleven-year-old dog, but used to be like just super active because Nicole would take her out for a run in the morning and then sometimes another run in the afternoon. And, uh, she doesn't do quite as much of that anymore as she's gotten older and it's a little more difficult in Phoenix in the summertime. She just can't handle the heat as much, but, um, that's kind of what we have going here. What, what do you feed your, what, what do you guys feed your dogs? I'm just kind of curious. I know Sean, you feed raw cause I've seen your pictures on <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. I've, we've done a combination. It, uh, our Stella's always eaten more or less a kibble diet from when Nicole had her, had her, and we've put her on a meat diet in the past and gone kind of back and forth. But I had a feeling when we when we scheduled you on the podcast afterwards, she'd be going back on the raw raw meat diet. So she's probably licking her chops back there right now. <laughs> you know, and just to be clear, you know, I'm not I'm not so sure. Like you look at some of these raw advocates, that, and they think there's this magic in the raw i'm not i'm not really convinced about that because like when i look at all the health benefits in my feline patients that's all canned food right so it's Mm -hmm. completely cooked it's just not ultra processed like kibble would be but here's the thing if you have a big dog and you're going to try to mimic a high protein moderate fat very low carb canned food you know how many cans per day how many cases per week yeah i mean it's not practical so then like me i got three freaking dogs you know, like I, I'm not so sure that this raw thing is the magical. It's just that I don't I have time to cook. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's just for me, it's just a practical deal. Yeah, you know, and that's that's ultimately where the fault lies that Stella's not still eating just meat is because <laughs> after a while you get busy and then you're just like, um, I you have to get creative, I guess, and or just get the routine in place where okay, I'm not just going to take a scoop out of this this plastic container, I'm actually going to pull something out of the fridge for, for the dog or give it part of the, the meat that I'm cooking for dinner or something like that. But is that, uh, is that something you see sometimes too folks kind of, cause I know you mentioned like when back, back when you talk some of the older farmers, they would be, they'd be like dog food, but you know, are people doing that too? Just going to you know, the grocery store and getting maybe whatever's on sale and just saying, Hey, this is what the dog's going to get now since, uh, since we have it in the house. Yeah, I have a lot of clients that do that. You know, they're always watching the sales and they, they buy bulk. And, and a lot of them, you know, they're doing homemade diets. They, they do cook their own, you know, and I think cooked is, is totally fine. Just mm-hmm. don't cook the bones and feed them. Sure. Uh, yeah, my, uh, it's kind of funny because I got two dogs. I've got Sasha, who's a, who's a he's six, seven-year-old English Golden Retriever, and Maximus, who's a three-year-old Coton de Tulier. And that little guy, man, he's like, I want my food cooked. You know, he he prefers it that way, but I'm, I'm like, too bad. You're gonna eat you're gonna eat rocks. I'm, I'm not gonna cook. I'm not gonna cook food for the damn dog. You know? <laughs> like, you know, so sometimes I did that for a while. My girlfriend was cooking for him, and I was like, I'll just give them. The, the, they'll get over it and suck it up. And so they do fine on both, quite honestly. But hey, I got a question. This will be controversial. What's a better animal, a cat or a dog? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not gonna answer that. That's too controversial. <laughs> you lose half your <laughs> clients. No matter what you my say. clients are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought so, but you got three dogs at home, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you should see my cat. She is a killer. I mean, 
this cat is amazing. Her name's Apple. And, you know, this time of year, so then she gets really jacked because uh, the, the cottontails, we got a lot of cottontails, and she's a hell of a rabbit hunter. You know, the, the first thing she eats when she kills a rabbit? The head. The head, yeah. Okay, huh. yeah. You know, and I was at, and, and, I, and then I found out later, it's one of the richest sources of taurine. But, I mean, it's just funny how Mother Nature kind of figured those things off. Yeah, no, it is kind of interesting, you know, and it's 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 kind of interesting how these animals. I mean, I think, I think for the most part, when these animals go for the, they're they're trying to get fat, you know. I mean, I think that's maybe what drives them is is you know, I mean, the brain obviously the brain is going to be a fat rich rich area, but I mean, it's interesting with cats because they are they do thrive better on higher protein than than even what a, I think a dog or a human would for sure. I mean, cats tend to really preference protein. I mean, I read some cat physiology when I was kind of looking into carnivorous animals it's kind of interesting because they run kind of a almost a diabetic path of almost a diabetic physiology with a little bit higher blood sugars and we see uh is a normal you know that's their normal sort of situation because they're carnivorous and you know higher protein is so they tend to run a little bit higher blood sugars than we would see as humans but at the same time they don't get the diabetic path of physiology unless you start adding all the grains and all that garbage in there which i think is kind of kind of interesting yeah i think it's kind of fascinating too um, yeah, I don't know why they run higher blood sugars, you know, and, I mean, I, and I don't know why they don't get, uh, you know, these atheromas, the uh, cardiovascular disease. I, it's, it's curious to me, I, you know, for those LDL skeptics, I mean, I don't think it's the, the cholesterol, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like I say, like I've had dogs with like, I had this one dog not too long ago. It, I think it's cholesterol was 2200, you know, never got yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you look at some of the cholesterol research and some of the models they have to use in animals, and they have to get their cholesterol way, way, way up. I, even like in, uh, in in primates, I mean, we're seeing cholesterols of, you know, 800 uh, you know, milligrams per deciliter before they can start to induce atherosclerosis even in those animals. And so it kind of really, it is kind of interesting when, when you look at that. And, you know, if you look at a cat that runs higher blood glucose is normally, and they're not developing diabetes. So you wonder is, is there some other factor that has to be there besides high cholesterol or high glucose? And maybe it's this, you know, underlying damage from whether it's refined ultra processed foods, which include, you know, refined grains and uh, seed oils and probably excessive amounts of sugar that, that uh, you know, and then, and, and, you know, if in humans we're looking at smoking and some of these other environmental factors. Yeah, I know like, you know, Zach with his amazing feats that he's pulled off, um, and I know you guys are both a fan of Stefanson's work, and uh, I learned about him from reading Gary Tobbs' Good Calories, Bad Calories. And so I went and read several of his books, like uh, My Life with the Eskimo and The Friendly Arctic and his autobiography. And, you know, I, we were all reading these books, um, but I, <laughs> I was kind of looking at it for a different perspective uh, in that, what about these sled dogs? These dogs are going for years at a time, pulling these huge sleds, just massive endurance and athletic feats you know and i've heard you talk on some of your podcasts like where you know like kill a seal and you know basically feed the intestines and the, the lungs and the spleen to the to the dogs you know and but uh and then the and then when they're caribou hunting you know the lean meat or any caribou that's too lean just all went to the dogs but uh i just think it's amazing those dogs don't get a lot of credit but they were really the, the backbone of, of that polar exploration you know they did, they did most of the work Look what they fed. They, you know, I, I say that because there's some uh, veterinarians that are prominent um, who are, uh, 
raw food advocates, but they talk about all these phytonutrient deficiencies you're going to get if uh, you don't include all these, you know, kale and all this crap. And uh, I just, I kind of question that. I wonder how those dogs in the Arctic survived, you know, about this. Yeah, where were they getting the kale or any leafy green at that point up there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure they were secretly, they, they were importing kale smoothies from, you know, from Central America, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago is how they were doing it. You know, yeah, it's, it is it is sort of an interesting thought. And, you know, I mean, there, I mean, really, I mean, when you look at it, there is no such thing as an essential phytonutrient. I mean, it's all kind of a marketing term that's come up there. I mean, we, we literally, humans and animals don't have to have them. Um, or at least many animals, I shouldn't say all animals, but, but certainly carnivorous animals. I don't think there's any, I mean, some people point out that, you know, sometimes dogs and cats will get out there and chew on grass. Uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I've read it, you know, it, maybe it's because they want to make themselves throw up, but I've other, I've read other people that say maybe it's some other issue. I mean, do you have any insight on that? Why we'll sometimes see a cat out there munching on a leaf of grass? Yeah, you know, and uh, I've wasted, invested, I've wasted more time re looking into this than you know. And there's different reasons why they eat grass. Like if they're out there just like aggressively mowing the grass, yeah, I think there's some GI disturbance and they're trying to use it, you know, to help them throw up or pass, pass it through. But for just like when they're like out in the yard and there's some long blades of grass along the fence and they're chewing on the grass, I, wolves do that too, right? And I, the biggest reason I've found for that is just because they like it. <laughs> I don't think that it makes it an essential nutrient because, I mean, look at these wolves in Yellowstone, like how many months of the year is it covered in snow and there's not access to these bling, green blades of grass and I don't think they die from a phytonutrient deficiency in the winter or barely survive it and then get rescued in the spring so I just I, I think they do it because they like it. I, it, it as stupid as that sounds I've wasted more time on that question than you know and I think that's why they chew on grass most of the time because they like it. Well, there you go. That's, that's probably as good as an answer as anything. You know, it's a lot, a lot of stuff why we do stuff because we like it, whether, you know, whether it's good for us or not is, is debatable. Um, Travis, let's, let's let people know where to get a hold of you, where to find you. I know you're up in practice up in Minnesota, but how can people follow you? And uh, uh, do you have anything else maybe coming up in the near future you want to let people know about? No, Sean, you know, I'm just in the trenches day to day, busier than heck. So I don't have a time for a lot of stuff, but uh, Twitter is probably the best way. And that's low carb vet uh, as a veterinarian but um yeah that's if, if you want to reach out to me that's probably the best way just i'm busy uh you know every day is just a whirlwind so i you know you spot if you send stuff to me just realize sometimes there's going to be a, a, a not, not going to be a brisk response and getting ready to be off the grid here for a week next week going fishing in canada so i'll be off off for a while too hey is there a resource for um uh, people that have animals that, that want to have a, a low-carb vet or something like that? Is there like a list of veterinarians that are supportive like you are? Is there any place people can go to? I don't know. I don't, I don't know is the honest answer. Well, that's as good as answer as any. Zach, anything else? I think that's, I think that's it. It's been uh, kind of fun to dive into the, the animal side of nutrition and uh, medicine with you, Travis. So, uh, uh, we'll link your Twitter to the show notes. So folks can check out what you're up to. Um, but yeah, otherwise, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, thank just, you guys. I'm a fan of your work. So keep cranking out the good content. Yeah. Drive Just before I go, I wanted to, you know, as a general recommendation, uh, if just for the generic person, what would you tell them to feed their dog and their cat just in general? <laughs> right. So with cats, it's easy, right? Um, 
and I have this discussion with clients all the time, but to get a high protein, moderate fat, very low carb canned cat food, like Frisky's classic pate, I've reversed more diabetics with that cheap food um, than uh, other stuff or, or fancy feast, you know, a lot of vets used to kind of run these foods down and now they're having to eat crow now that the research is coming out. But then, uh, then I'll have some of these holistic vets come after me uh, because it contains byproducts. I'm a fan of byproducts, okay? I'm a huge fan. Uh, the, the intestines, the heart, liver, kidneys, it's more nutrient-dense than meat. So I'm a huge fan of byproducts. But then they come back at me and say, we don't know the sourcing of the byproducts. And you don't uh, because there's integrated um, renderers and then there's independent. And the integrated ones, are, that's what all the big players use. So I know I'm probably plugging industry, but you know, the, the foods I use are made by Purina and they're cheap. I, I got my own health concerns. So I'm just trying to help as many pets as I can with the time I have left. And so like, you know, 50 cents a can, you could feed your, your pet. Uh, I'm not saying it's the best food, but I'm comfortable saying it's the best food for the money. And I'm also comfortable saying like, if it's that canned food, um, it's, uh, it's better than the most expensive dry food you can get. Um, and I know some of the holistic vets don't agree with me because it has byproducts and we disagree on the value of moisture in the diet, but I'm just giving you my opinion and I'm probably wrong. Those people have studied it longer than me, but I just think that's the way you can mimic a, a natural diet. So what for dogs, you know, after 19 years of studying this for dogs, I, I'm unfortunately, I think it's the same freaking thing. It's a canned high protein, moderate fat, very low carb, um, canned food. It's just not practical for those with big dogs. And so that's why people end up making their own food just to be cost effective. And like I say, I'm not, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I'm not so sure about this magic of raw. I just do it because I can't, I can't cook three times a day or I can't cook for three dogs. You know, I just not going to happen. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Travis. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.